Thank you for joining us for another lesson from God's Word. The West Huntsville Church of Christ at Providence is located at 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Anytime you're in the Huntsville area, we hope you'll stop in and be part of our worship. Sunday morning worship is at 9 o'clock, with Bible class immediately following. Sunday evening worship is at 5. Midweek Bible study is held Wednesdays at 7. Well, we are thankful uh, tonight that uh, Mark Bailey is here. I'm very thankful that you came, or I would be up here talking, right? So thank you for coming. But Mark uh, is a good friend of mine. I've known Mark since uh, I've been in my mid-20s, and uh, we uh, have run together. I taught Mark the value of riding a bicycle. So you can ask him about that, and he'll tell you that story. But uh, if I had to write uh, a title over Mark's life... It would be the word committed. He's a committed Christian. He's 100% all in. When Mark uh, says he decides he's going to do something, whether whatever it is, he's all in. And I've always appreciated that about him. And uh, he, he's wonderful in this church to help people, to seek people out, to talk to people. And uh, we're just so very thankful for he and Lori, and we love him so much. Uh, you know, Mark uh, directed... Family Bible Week, as it was called many years ago, for several years, and he was our youth deacon for many years, and he has uh, made such a huge impact over the years at West Huntsville, and we're so very thankful that he's going to be speaking to us tonight. Shining Bright in a Dark World is his title this evening. It's really good to be able to stand before you tonight. I really appreciate the opportunity, and I appreciate the kind words that Paul said. I'm not sure that they're all accurate. Uh, but I would be willing to tell you a story about me running and him being on a bike sometime, if you'd really like to know about that. When Paul contacted me to speak in the fall series, he presented me with a few topics to choose from. And I chose this one not because I'm an authority on the topic, not because I'm an expert or a model on how to stay bright in a dark world, I chose the topic because I'm none of those. In fact, when I look at my life, I see many times where I have failed to be the right kind of influence that I should have been. And so this topic challenges me, and this study has really convicted me. So I come to you as someone you know. I'm not an outsider. I'm not a speaker who is an expert in some topic, I'm one of you. And we're family. So I'm simply a struggling brother who's going to look at this topic with you tonight. And hopefully, we can together take something away from our study and put it into practice in our lives, which is going to enable us to be brighter than we may have been in the past. So if you've lived any length of time at all, I think you'll agree with me when I say that things sure have changed, and relatively fast, haven't they? So it seems that up is down, and down is up, and um, things that we never would have thought would have come to pass in our culture are here, and they're prevalent, and they don't appear to be going anywhere. Who would have thought that some states would codify into law transgender care 
for minors and in some circumstances without a parent's consent. Who would have thought that these so-called smash-and-grab crimes would become so frequent in some cities and in some states um, and that the criminals who are doing these things are just getting off scot-free? Who would have thought that suicide rates would be at an all-time high over the past two decades when we live in a great time of prosperity? Who would have thought that help-wanted signs would be all over the place and jobs available basically everywhere, and you can't get people to fulfill the need? Who would have thought? Who would have thought that belief in God and the overall population of this country would be on the decline? And who would have thought that culture in general would become more and more secular and hostile to Christianity? Who would have thought? Right? I I sometimes have to pinch myself because I can't believe it. But the truth is that the world has always been broken. And things are simply not the way that they were intended to be. And it all started back in the garden, didn't it? And also think about the time leading up to the flood. In Genesis chapter 6, verse 5, it tells us that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. What about the sin of Sodom? The sin was so great that not even ten righteous people could be identified before it was destroyed. What about the Roman Empire in the first century? Very corrupt, but they invented and perfected new ways of committing evil. More recently, in the past century, we look back to Europe in the 1930s and 1940s, and we see the rise of Hitler, and we know what all happened there. But even now, we see the consequences of bad ideas, don't we? We see the consequences here and around the world. Of course, you know what's going on. Worldview really does matter. Ideas have consequences, and bad ideas have victims. (laughs) In his book, Wisdom from Babylon, Gordon T. Smith suggests that there are various ways that those who are religious are attempting to respond to this secular age that we find ourselves in. You can go to the next slide. There you go. And so the first response that he suggests is what he calls go along to get along. And this is seen as a surrender to secularity, according to Smith, and is really the most common response that we find. Those who are living this way are living a divided life. Monday through Friday, they live their lives according to the secular script. Faith is privatized. Religion is left at home. And there's this so-called firewall between what they believe and the rest of their daily activities. The second response that he mentions is what he calls the monastic response. And this is a retreat. And we know that there are some religious bodies who have actually done this. And what they've done is they've built a protective wall between them and the rest of culture. Is this a legitimate option? Can and should Christians adopt this method? Is it scriptural? 
The third response that Smith mentions is what he calls culture war. According to Smith, the assumption here is that society was once Christian and that society has always uh, been at its best when it was based on Christian values. And so the war is fought in the courts, it's, it's fought in the education system, it's fought in the legislatures. And he contends that this has also led to what we know as Christian nationalism by some, which is really more political in nature than it is spiritual. And then the last option that he presents in his book is what he calls faithful presence. And this is what he advocates for the most. Here, the Christian should accept the circumstances and the facts as they are and then consider it as an opportunity. So the Christian must be present, must be engaged, and the Christian must be practicing very distinctive things which identify them and set them apart And then he encourages those of us who are trying to follow Christ to find new ways to live alongside culture and beside the world without being actually drawn into it. Well, I'm not sure that I agree completely with everything that Smith concludes, but I do think he makes several good points for us to consider. How do we live as a Christian in this time and place that we find ourselves in? How do we responsibly perform the duties as a disciple of Christ in our culture? Think about Isaiah. Isaiah the prophet. He began his ministry at a very sinful time in Judah's history. Yet he is the one who announces that a light would be coming, which is going to help push back against the darkness. In Isaiah 42, verse 6, and 49, verse 6, he speaks of a light for the nations and of someone who would be given as a covenant to the people. And we know, of course, that this someone he's talking about is Jesus Christ. Now fast forward to the New Testament, and we see Jesus being actually referred to as light. We read about that in John chapter 1, in John chapter 3. We read about it again in John chapter 8, specifically there in verse 12. And then in chapter 9, verse 5, we see where Jesus makes the claim himself. He says, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. In Matthew chapter 4, we see that Jesus begins his ministry. And he's chosen his first set of disciples, and he begins to teach them, and he begins to perform great miracles, and so he begins to gather large crowds of followers. And in chapter 5, he withdraws from the crowds and he takes his disciples with him and he begins to teach them. And he says this beginning in verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father 
who is in heaven. So the attention has now shifted to his followers. And he uses two very powerful metaphors to describe how they are to be. Jesus is telling his disciples that they must be an influence for good in the world that is around them. We want to think about this together tonight and see if we can actually make some application for our own lives as we think about what Jesus said to his disciples. Now, someone might stop here and say, well, the Bible contradicts itself. After all, did not Jesus himself say that you're not to do things in front of others? And we see that in other passages uh, taught that we're not to associate with the world. In fact, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 2, it says, When you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you. Matthew chapter 6, verse 6, When you pray, go into your room and shut the door. Matthew chapter 6, verse 16, When you fast, do not look gloomy. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17, Paul said, Go out from their midst and be separate from them. And those things are all true. But they really speak to our motive. They speak to the why we do behind what it is that we do. So if our reason for living the Christian life is to get attention for ourselves, to get a pat on the back, or to receive praise from others, then our heart is simply not in the right place. We are to be separate from the world. We are to avoid the love of the world. But if we are to be salt, then we have to mix with our surroundings. If we are to be light, we must interact with the darkness that is around us. Titus chapter 2, beginning in verse 11, says this, For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly. Where? In the present age. In the here and now. In Luke chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, we read that Jesus himself associated with sinners. In 1 Corinthians 9, verse 22, we see that Paul became all things to all men that he might save some. So from this, we see that the monastic response is simply not going to work, is it? We can't totally withdraw from what is around us. Instead, we need to check our motives and we need to ask ourselves, why is it that I'm doing what I'm doing? Is it my goal to point people to God? Or am I looking to draw attention to myself for all the wrong reasons? So let's look again back at Matthew 5 now in verse 13. The text again says, You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Now, the Bible shows that salt was used in a variety of ways. For example, in the Old Testament, salt 
was to be used with the sacrifices of God. Sometimes after a city was conquered and destroyed in battle, salt would be spread over the area as a symbolic act that that particular geographical area was to be a deserted area. And salt, of course, was used for preserving food and adding flavor. And salt was even viewed as a very valuable item. So what is Jesus trying to say here in calling them salt? Well, he may have been suggesting a number of different things. Well, looking at the context, we see that where he said this, it came right after what he said in the Beatitudes. And there, Jesus told them that they would be blessed when they were persecuted. They would be blessed when they were mistreated. They would be blessed when they were accused falsely. So in a real sense, they were going to be a sacrifice, much as the prophets and the others had in the past who went before them. They were to have a preserving effect on the world. By the way that they lived, they were going to be slowing down the moral and spiritual decay that was around them. And just like adding a little salt to food can make the taste so much better, the disciples, even though they were few in number, were going to be influential. And they were going to have a real impact on the world. Jesus then talks about the salt losing its taste. That's the way it says it in the ESV. Other translations say the salt might lose its saltiness. And if salt is mixed with too many other substances, it can certainly become diluted and lose its effect. So, what about us? How how can we apply this to us? Well, even though we may be few in number, and that number may be growing smaller, we can still have an influence. We are indeed to be focused on heaven, but we are to have a preserving effect on our generation right now. Just as the disciples were, we are to be a reminder to the world. We are to make things better. It is through us that culture can't forget who Christ is and what really matters. That's our purpose, is being sought. Others should also see a very distinctive way of living in us. We should stand out. We should be different. So the question is, have we lost our flavor? If we refuse to live the way we should as Christians, then we lose our ability to influence. And it will be difficult to get it back. In John chapter 4, the entire city was changed because they had been with Jesus. And we read over in Acts chapter 4 that the religious leaders of the time were amazed at Peter and John, two so-called simpletons, because they took note that they had been with Jesus. So do people note that you and I have been with Jesus? Do they see something different in us? Back to Matthew chapter 5. So let's pick back up again and let's look at verses 14 through 16. Beginning in 14, it says, You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden, 
nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Now, the original word here for light is the Greek word phos, and it, it literally means light, but it speaks more to its effect. Light reveals, it makes something clear. And so the New Testament uses the word light also in a figurative way to represent good while the term darkness is almost always used in a negative or a bad sense. Jesus calls the disciples the light of the world. They would be his representative. And he is the source of that light and he's the illuminator of men. So they would reflect that light or they would be bearers of that light to the world in that time and place. And the text mentions uh, a lamp, it mentions a house, and it mentions a city. So perhaps Jesus is referring both to our influence as individuals and then collectively as a group. He was talking to people who really had no power. They had no resources, yet he was telling them they still had an ability to point people to God. So Jesus points out that a city on a hill cannot be hidden. In fact, a small group of lights can can shine very bright. A couple of months ago, Lori and I went to Yellowstone National Park with Alan and Deanne. And so uh, Lori and I love parks, and so one of the things we like to do when we go to a national park is we like to drive out into the park at night when it's really dark, and we like to do some stargazing. And so we went out away from where we were staying in the park and we sat there for a while, actually sat there for quite a while. And as the sun went down, we could actually see the stars, but we couldn't see it as good as we had seen in other places and at other times. And I noticed that way off in the distance, there was a glow from a group of lights, obviously, far away. And so that little light skewed our vision of the stars that night. So the point is, is that the darker the night, the larger the impact of a single light or a group of lights. So in much the same way, this small group of disciples would shine bright for Christ. In fact, in Acts chapter 17, verse 6, they would eventually lead a movement that others would say would turn the world upside down. So what about us again? Let's think about ourselves as an individual lamp. And so as I think about putting this light in my home, how well is it shining in my private life? How well is it shining in my family life? Am I shining bright in my leadership of my family on a path towards heaven? Are we, as a family, making a difference in the lives of other people? Is my private life and the image that I like to project in public the same? Do I have the same character in both places? You know, Jesus is calling us to be light in both places. What about our collective light as a congregation here at West Huntsville? 
We can't hide our lamps inside this building behind these walls. We're supposed to be a city that people cannot help but notice. Our community needs to know about us, not because our location right here on this corner or because the sign that's outside of the building, but they need to know us because of what we're doing. So are we making a difference? If our doors were to close tomorrow, would anyone notice? So in the time we have remaining, and I'm going to have to move fast, I want us to think about a few more ideas about how we might practically apply these ideas of salt and light to our own lives as Christians in this time and place. So get ready and fasten your seatbelt because I am going to have to move fast. So point number one is this. We can work on growing to be more like Christ. It's true, isn't it? And you may say, well, that's obvious, Mark. And oh, that's a tried, overused expression. But it's the truth. We need to have his mind. What kind of mind did he have? Well, let's read in Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5, where it says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Someone has said that we need to have Jesus' eyes so that we can have compassion to meet their needs. We need to have Jesus' hands so that we can bless them. We need to have Jesus' feet so that we can go and do good works. And then, of course, we need to be a productive part of the body of Christ, which is His church. So we can work individually to grow to be more like Christ. Point number two, we have to be willing to interact with the world. You know, we're very busy doing our own thing, aren't we? You know, we have our jobs, we have our family, uh, we have our house, we have our hobbies, we have our things. We live private lives, don't we? We've become so isolated in this culture And COVID didn't help it, did it? Our big challenge then for many of us is simply to just interact. Just interact. Engage with people. Do our neighbors even know we're Christians? Would our coworkers connect our lives with being a Christian? Look at what Christ did. Again, he paid attention to the marginalized. He called them the least of these. He spent time with sinners. Are we willing to do the same? So one of the challenges for us as Christians is we we need to interact with the darkness. Point number three, we need to know what truth is and refuse to compromise it. Again, maybe an obvious thing, right? may seem like a trite expression, but let's look at some specific examples. The first example I want to mention is that we need to know the difference in objective truth and subjective truth. And some of you have heard me talk about this before because I'm big on this. Objective truth is the stuff that's true for all of us, whether we like it or not. (laughs) Because it's rooted in the object itself. Subjective truth is stuff that is a matter of personal taste or opinion. And it's rooted in the subject, 
that has the opinion. And you know that our culture is completely dominated with subjective truth claims. Well, what is truth? Well, truth corresponds to reality. And I would submit to you that the Christian worldview is the worldview that closest matches reality. And so we need to be able to know that and understand it and not compromise it. A second thing I want to think about is we need to speak the truth with our vocabulary. Okay, what are you talking about, Mark? Well, listen to this. Someone has said, quote, what is in a word? Everything. Words shape how we think and view the world. The real danger is using soft words to deceive us all from the harsh realities of life, end quote. So as Christians, we can't fall trapped to this redefinition of terms that we see going on in our culture. Here's some examples for you. Abortion has become reproductive rights. Your sex is now gender assigned at birth. Equality has been replaced with equity. Global warming has been softened to climate change. So you see what's going on? So culture is in the process of redefining the terms and they want you to play the game. And we can't play the game. Other terms of the culture include words or phrases like non-binary or transgender. And then the actual meaning of some terms has shifted. For example, the word tolerance and consent. Those words don't mean what they've always meant anymore. And then this little phrase, live your truth, is absolutely false. There is no truth in live your truth, right? That's a subjective truth claim. All right, and then the last thing I wanted to mention, or there's two more things. Speak the truth when using pronouns. All right, this is a difficult topic and one that we really need to think about. And in fact, if you work in a corporate environment, you may be up against this. And if you're not up against it yet, you may be in the near future. So it might seem harmless to use these so-called preferred pronouns. But in doing so, think about what you're doing. We are affirming a different worldview that is not rooted in reality. And I would submit also we might actually be doing damage to the one that we're talking to because we might be saying, hey, go ahead and do whatever that harmful thing is that you're thinking about doing to your body. So we need to think about this beforehand, and then we need to practice a proper approach when we, we get engaged in a conversation with someone who, who wants to have us treat them this way. And then, of course, the last thing is we need to speak the truth in love. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15. You know, we must be kind in our speech. We must mind the way that we say things so it can have its proper effect. Point number four, demonstrate a positive outlook concerning the circumstances of life. It's natural and far easier for us, isn't it, to react negatively to all the hardships that we see in life, to all the bad things that we see happening in the world. We know all the bad actors are going Uh, crazy right now. We know the world's on fire. Do we complain about it? Do we appear to be negative? Do we give the impression of hopelessness 
You know, Jesus reminded us in John chapter 16, verse 33, in this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. So should we be surprised about hardship? No. Is it okay to express horror and disbelief? Absolutely. Should we be concerned? Yes. Should we be worried? Maybe. Should we be secure? Yes, we should be. Our negativity and hopelessness as Christians should be turned into hope in God, which we can then use to encourage others with that hope that we have, right? Philippians chapter 2, verse 14, Do all things without complaining and disputing that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. So, can we demonstrate a calmness and a peace that others might not have? Because if we can, then we definitely will be shining as a light in a dark place. Point number five, see something, say something. You've heard that term, haven't you? That term was created by the Department of Homeland Security for those of us who might see something that might be suspicious and might be something leading to terrorism. So it encourages people to speak up. So in our spiritual lives, we need to do the same thing, don't we? We need to take this phrase to heart. Sooner or later, we're going to have to speak up. It takes courage in other, uh, in our method, method uh, I'm going too fast, our method matters. I'm trying to squeeze all this in really quickly. What I'm trying to say here is the method matters. Colossians chapter 4, verse 6, let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you may know how you ought to answer each one. You know, we don't like it when someone wakes us up with a light shining in our face, do we? I don't don't like it when somebody walks in the room and pulls the shade up really fast. I don't like it when I'm driving down the road and the guy that's coming at me has got his lights on high beam, right? What does that do? It blinds me. And so when we go around with our lights on high beam and we are trying to blind everybody with our um, attitude, it's not effective. So we need to be careful. We need to have the truth, but our approach can turn people off. Other thing I wanted to mention was that we need to prepare because that will enable us to have courage. We need to learn apologetics. Yes, I said it. Uh, But we need to go beyond the basics, right? We need to know more than what we know on the kids' sing card, which I think is a fantastic thing. But we need to be able to participate in the marketplace of ideas. We need to be able to explain why we believe what we believe. Uh, Then we need to ask questions before we speak up, but we don't have time to go into those. If you want to talk to me offline about that, I'll be happy to give you those questions. Because the last point I really wanted to make, we need to prepare for persecution. That is a hard statement, isn't it? It's unpleasant. I don't like it. In fact, I get chill bumps thinking about it. But it's something we've got to think about. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, verse 12, All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But why? That's a fair question. Why? Why would somebody want to persecute Christians, people who want to follow Christ, the the greatest man that ever lived, the greatest ethic that was accompanied with that man? John chapter 3, verse 19, Jesus gives us the answer. The light has come into the world, and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. That's why. 
That's why Christians suffer persecution. So if you and I are reflecting the light of Christ in our lives, there's a good chance we're going to be persecuted. Now, it might come in the form of name-calling. It might be slander. Um, It might be getting canceled by the culture around us. But it might come in the form of job loss, loss of material goods and possessions, or something even worse. God forbid. So how do we prepare? Well, we've got to make up our minds ahead of time. We've got to decide, I'm going to be faithful. I'm going to be faithful even when persecution comes. That's hard, but we've got to prepare. And then as a body of Christ, I want to ask this question. We need to be willing and prepare, well, make the statement. We need to be willing and be prepared to support those who are being persecuted. Are we ready for that, Christians, church? Are we ready? Are we ready to help one of our brothers and sisters who may be going through this? We need to be. I'm afraid that it's time for us to really think soberly and seriously about this. So there's way more that we could say for sure, but this is a starting point for us as we think about the kind of changes that we can make in our lives so that we can be the salt and light that the world desperately needs around us. Thank you for your attention. We hope you have enjoyed this lesson from God's Word. If you would like to continue your study of New Testament Christianity, please send your name and address to World Bible School, West Huntsville Church of Christ, 1519 Old Monrovia Road, Northwest, Huntsville, Alabama, 35806. Or if you prefer, send your name and address by email to wbs at westhuntsville.org.